This is good. I like a handheld mic, but sometimes Lawson tells me off because I get too distracted and I start talking and you can't tell what I'm saying. But anyway, good morning. I'm Darren. For those of you that don't know me and for those that do know me, I'm still Darren. So good morning. I'm here to tell you that you are stubborn this morning. I'm here to tell you that you are self-centered this morning. I'm here to tell you, you don't know what you're talking about. How do you feel? That's good. Caleb feels okay. Do you feel a bit of anger rising perhaps with me this morning already? Am I in danger of being carried out into the car park and left out there? Trigger's ready. (laughs) Now you know how the Pharisees felt. Now you understand how they felt, just in a small way, how they felt about Jesus. This morning we're going to uncover how our similarities similarities actually run deeper than that. But first you might say, hang on, what's a Pharisee? I don't even know what that means. Um, and that's a good question to ask, because we've read about them here in our text. Let me tell you a little bit about the history of what's happening here. So the Jews and their leaders were dejected about the state of the nation. They used to be different to all the other nations. They used to have the presence of God residing right in the middle of them, right in their midst. And in a long, sad tale, which you can read all the way through the Old Testament, the once great nation, called to be in a faithful relationship with God, had repeatedly rebelled against God and ignored his warnings from the prophets to turn. This ended up with them being dragged away in exile in Babylon. And most significantly for them, the glory of God, it says, his very presence left them. You can read about that in Ezekiel chapter 10. Ezekiel pictures the glory of God as this burning fiery chariot with many wheels and those wheels spin and take off and God's presence leaves them and leaves the temple. This is the background in which the Pharisees are living. Now, in the minds of this extremely religious group, the Pharisees, the religious experts and the leaders of the day, they deduced that if breaking God's law was what caused God's presence to leave, to have that chariot take off, then perhaps if they got super serious about following all the laws, God might return and come back to dwell with them. So as you can imagine, when you get super serious about something, you get super strict, um, so for them, the centre of this framework was the, was the Torah, was the law. And some of you would know part of that because we're familiar somewhat with the Ten Commandments. That might be part of that that you know. Don't lie, don't steal, honour God from Exodus. So for them, they thought, rather than breaking these rules, we need to make sure that we stay really safe. We need to be really strict. If God's going to come back and dwell with us and be present with us, we need to build more rules around the outside of those rules So we never get to the inside rules, the important ones, and break them. So they start to add more and more things on the outside. So you'd never get to the the rules in there. That'd be safe. We've got 15 laws that we won't break until we get there. And we'll tell you off. If you break rule number 15 out here before you get in to the important rules, at least we've stayed safe. And we're going to keep everyone else in line too. Because if you mess up, God's not coming back. Because this is a national thing for them. This is the mindset of the Pharisee. The religious teacher, the expert the ruler of the local worship place, the synagogue. So their identity and their hope is now very much entwined with law-keeping, rigorous, 
vigorous law keeping, keeping the laws in your life, keeping the laws in my life, keeping the tiny, tiny laws they had made to stop you breaking the big, big laws. So this is all bubbling away in the background of our text and story today. And this ties in with the theme we're up to in Matthew 11 to 13. In these chapters, it's about rising opposition to Jesus. We find ourselves in a grain field today. We find that we're travelling through the grain field with Jesus and his disciples in verse 1. They appear to be on their way to the synagogue on the Sabbath, because that's where the story ends up. And what happens? Jesus is walking, his disciples are with him. And they start to pick the heads of grain and eat. Now, you're allowed to do that. They weren't stealing. This is part of God's law as well, back from the Old Testament. To look after the poor, which is always God's intention, to make sure everyone is provided for. You were allowed to go into your neighbour's field, if you were very poor, and start to pluck things and take. So if you you live next to a, a grape grower, you'd go in and pick some grapes and eat, and your family might come with you if they're poor too. You could go over and get some grain from the field and pluck and eat. What you weren't allowed to do was take in your harvester, crank it up and and start harvesting. That was against the law. In those days, that was a sickle. You couldn't take your sickle in and start to do that. Uh, But I imagine in my mind, lots of people lived over near the grape farmer. They were excited about that. No one over here lived next to the the cabbage farmer. Nah, he was lonely. Uh, I don't think anyone was over near the broccoli farmer. They're all over near the good stuff, I reckon. So if you were a savvy farmer in the day, you'd pick something that no one liked because then you might make a profit because no one picked all your stuff. I don't know. But this is the law. This is the background. You're allowed to do this. They're not doing something wrong in the essence here. But then what pops up? We've got some Pharisees, and I don't know how they got there. They're like hiding off in the the grain field, and they're just lurking around. And then they see the disciples, and they're plucking, eating, and they pop up and go, hang on. Hang on a sec, what's going on here? Like, you're allowed to pluck grain, but not on the Sabbath. That wouldn't be allowed. And you go, okay, this is interesting. So, why why are they picking on Jesus' disciples? The reason here is, in this culture, the teacher was responsible for the student's behaviour. So, when your students messed up, it meant you were a horrible teacher. Now, fortunately, for the teachers amongst us here today, we're not quietly, quite so tied to the idea that students exactly reflect the quality of the teacher. Um, we're not quite so judgmental. Now, if you are a teacher, sometimes they do get a bit judgmental. I am married to one. And when a relief teacher comes in, those poor relief teachers, you've got to come in and speak to a room full of people that you've never met before. The kids know if we mess up here, we're probably going to get away with it. And so the next day, the teacher comes back from having a sick day and they go, gee, that, let's not get that relief teacher in. There was a riot in the room. There's graffiti on the walls, on the walls. There's paper all over the place. And uh, so there is a little bit of judgment there, but I think mad respect to our relief teachers. Um, they do a great job. But in this case, it was strongly linked. The disciples' behaviour was linked to Jesus. So this is a shot at Jesus. We can say, we can get at Jesus here. Um, we're going to find out why that's important. But in this case, they popped out of the wheat field and they said, the disciples, they're doing the wrong thing. Your students are horrible students. Don't they know the rules about the Sabbath? And now we've got another word. You're going, what's a Sabbath? Like, like, you know, I know Black Sabbath. Trigger's nodding over there. But what's the Sabbath? Is is that like half of the band that never got back together again? It's not. 
It's another religious term that you need to know as we progress here. So the idea of the Sabbath um, is in the law, but doesn't start in the law for these guys. It actually starts in creation. If you read in Genesis, when God made everything, when he had finished making everything, he rested. And it wasn't because he was tired, because God doesn't get tired. It was because he was finished. And so it says he created for six days and he rested on the seventh to make a pattern for us. And the word there in the Hebrew, and I'm going to say it horribly wrong, is Shabbat. And it means to end or to finish. And that's where we get our idea of weekend from. We rest on the weekend. Now, I'm not going to go into how the Sabbath relates to Christians today because it'd be a long lesson and I'm not very ready for that. So come and see me another day. But this is the idea here. This theme comes back in Exodus 16 when the, uh, the children of Israel, these Jews are out, they're following God in, in the wilderness. They don't have food prepared for them. God sends heavenly manna. Who knows what that was like? Was it a donut? I don't know. Was it a cracker? There's no idea. We don't know exactly what this food type was like. But it came down six days a week. You had to get extra on the sixth day. So you were prepared on the seventh so you could rest and eat to follow God's pattern. This comes back again in the Ten Commandments that we talked about. Keep the Sabbath holy. Keep a day set aside, different from the others, where you are not working, you are resting. Because unlike God, you're not just finished, you're tired. So you need it. So God's put this in place for you. As time progressed, these religious experts made keeping the Sabbath more and more complicated. They added those five, ten and fifteen different rules to protect the Sabbath. There are many things you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. I'm told, I haven't checked my sources here so Google this, but in, in today's ultra-Orthodox Jewish community, if you drive a car through an ultra-Orthodox community on the Sabbath, you'll be in big trouble because you are starting a fire, combustion engine, right? I don't know how it works with electric cars. Um, I haven't checked. But you're starting a fire in the car, which is prohibited. It's work. So they get very cross, and they may even pick up some rocks and throw them at your vehicle, I'm told. Uh, it's a very serious thing for them because they've made these rules of what it means. What does work mean? Uh, are we allowed to press the lift button? Is that work? But if we take the stairs, is that more work? Should we just wait for someone to press the lift button for us and then, then we're okay? So they're trying to work it out. And in Matthew 23, same book, Jesus says, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat in verses 2, 3 and 4. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But, they do, not, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Might be work. Jesus is saying the Pharisees have made resting hard work. You remember from chapter 11, Jesus says, enter into my rest. It's true rest. It's not rest where you're worried about whether you're resting follow me, my yoke is easy. Step in alongside me, you'll understand which laws are for your benefit and how they work. But back to today's account. So that's the, the Sabbath, back to today's account. What were the Pharisees doing out there? Spying, looking for ways to accuse Jesus perhaps, following along. Why? Because he didn't fit their expectations of the one who was going to rescue them, their Messiah, this 
figure they were looking for. Was he going to be political? Was he going to be, uh, you know, was he going to be in the army to rescue them that way by force from their oppressing Roman um, occupiers? He didn't fit their expectations. And he had way too much focus on them. Come on, the problem's out there. Uh, we're doing all right. Why is Jesus talking about us all the time? So we've got to find ways to get back at Jesus. We're the establishment. We're the experts. Uh, he needs to back off a bit. We need to put him in his place here and make sure people know we are the experts. We run the synagogue. And so um, this is their way to get at him. They're going to track him around and pop up out of the grain field and say, your disciples are doing the wrong thing. Do you know what Jesus does? He speaks to them in verse three. He says, haven't you read what David did when he's and his companions were hungry. The first part of this is really actually quite cutting. It's like saying to Lawson, who's our lead pastor here, haven't you read in the Bible, Lawson? And Lawson would be like, hang on, what? Who are you? I've finished my masters of whatever he did. And I got high distinctions and stuff. And you'd be like, yeah, but don't you know what you're talking about? And Lawson will start to feel a bit like you felt this morning when I posed those questions. And if you do that to me, I'm only second year college and I know there's a lot of stuff I don't know. I'm finding out how much I don't know about the Bible and I'm a bit sensitive about it. So I'd do the same thing. I'd be like, yeah, well, whatever. What do you know either? I'm two years in, you're no years in. I'll get defensive. And you might be right, but I'll ignore it. So Jesus is saying... Don't you know? Haven't you read? You're the experts. Haven't you really read the scriptures? And then he points to two things here that they should know. He says, the future king of David, he entered the, the priest's presence and he said, give me the bread that's dedicated for the Lord. It was a special bread they used to bake every week. They had to sift the flour many times to make sure the flour was pure did the bake it every week, it was freshly done, it would be presented to the Lord. The priests were allowed to eat the old bread because priests were allowed to eat the things that were no longer offered to the Lord as part of their, their living, the way they earned their keep. And David is on the run here. David's actually on the run from King Saul. And he says, give me something to eat. And the priest says, I've only got like the, the serious bread. You can't have that, I don't think. And David says, come on, give me something to eat. And the priest says, well, you're starving, you're on the run. And he checks and he says, at least tell me that your men have been keeping themselves morally pure. They've not been with the women sleeping around. And David says, they haven't. We've, even when we're not on a holy mission, we stay holy. That's what David says. David's actually lying at this point in one section of the story from 1 Samuel 21. And he says, because the priest says to him, why are you here anyway? And David says, I'm on a secret mission from Saul. If I told you, I'd have to kill you. And uh, he's not. He's just running from Saul. So Jesus doesn't point to that bit. He says, just, yeah, that's not good either. He's not going to point to that bit. He's talking about the bread. And he says, David shows up and asks for the bread. There's an interesting parallel I discovered here. And it wasn't me that came up with it because I'm only in second year of Bible college. Um, and what Jesus points out here, I think, is there is a link between David and Jesus. At the moment, David is the anointed rightful king in 1 Samuel 21. The prophet Samuel has come to him and said, you're going to be our next king. God has ordained you as king and he's poured oil on him to signify this. 
David has been nationally rejected and he's on the run. He's not yet able to take that throne. This is the reason for his desperate hunger. It's not really his fault. He should be king. Kings aren't on the run normally. Kings aren't hungry, searching and begging for bread. This is kind of Saul's fault, right? So Ahimelech, the priest, says, you can have this, you can have this showbread, that's what it's called. I think it's spelled S-H-E-W, not showbread. It's not like from the Royal Adelaide show or anything. And he agrees it to give it to David. And Jesus says, I might be pointing to myself here. I've come along and said, I'm the rightful king. Jesus is king. That's me. I've been anointed of God to do this task. But Jesus is nationally rejected, isn't he? The people that ran the show, these legal experts, these religious leaders said, no, that's not the case. You're not king, Jesus. We reject you. And secondly, the followers of Jesus wouldn't need to pluck grain on the Sabbath if Jesus were treated like a king, would he? Because they'd actually be eating proper food that was pre-prepared. So Jesus is kind of saying, it's good for David and the priest affirmed it and you like that system. Well, I'm just, I'm better than that. And I'm doing the same thing and my disciples are doing the same thing. But it goes further. He says, all right, you like the law so much. You like the system where we worship God with these rituals, which are good, but you're very fixated on those. Have you thought about the Levite priests, that tribe that worships God by serving in the temple area, in the tabernacle area? He says in verse 5, they work on the Sabbath and they're guilt-free. So this is the second part of his accusation. He says, they're working and they're doing it on the Sabbath. Isn't that wrong? No, it's not. They're allowed to work on the Sabbath as well. So the Pharisees are now thinking, some of them I reckon have now lowered themselves back into the grain. There was one guy that came up with this idea and he's now lowered himself back down because he's afraid the others. He was like, I've got a cracker idea. We're going to get Jesus in the grain field. And now he's like sitting back down again because he's afraid his mates are going to pick on him. So he's like, that wasn't my idea because Jesus is on fire here. He's... You know, I can feel the burn. Um, Because Jesus now fires up and says, what about the priests? And um, the poor Pharisees say, well, I didn't think of that. This is not going great here. Um, So he points to the system where the Levites were doing God's work and they were allowed to do work on the Sabbath. Um, And Jesus then says, this is why they really hate him, something greater than the temple is here in verse 6. P.S. that's me. That's what he's implying. You can check your Bible won't have the PS bit in there, I promise. But that's what he's saying. Something greater than the temple is here. If that system's allowed to work on the Sabbath, I'm allowed to work on the Sabbath. We're okay here. And then he says, in verse 7, check it out. He says, if you'd known what these words mean. Oh, dear me. You're an expert. If you'd known what this was all about. Hang on, we know what this is all about. Jesus says, no. If you'd known what this is all about. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. If you'd known that, you would not have condemned the innocent. Jesus says, you've missed the whole picture of why this is in place. You've put 5, 10 and 15 different rules in place so you don't get to breaking this one, but you've forgotten the rule was made so you don't work seven days a week so that you actually have a rest. It's for your benefit. This is not so you can do religious good stuff. As much as religious good stuff is good stuff, It's for you. So when that becomes a barrier to people actually living a full life before me, 
you need to get rid of the stuff that is burdensome on their shoulders. So we see there's two comebacks of Jesus here. He says, look at David, look at the temple workers. And then he really gets stuck into them. They get really fired up here because Jesus says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. This is kind of like a, a mic drop moment here. And I'm not going to drop the mic because I can't afford to repay it. I'm a second year Bible college student. Um, so Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. This is pivotal. Jesus just claimed to have invented the Sabbath. He says, I'm the one from Genesis that made the rules that's, that rested. I'm the one that sent you the bread in the wilderness. I'm the one that gave you the rules so you wouldn't wear yourselves out. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. He says that in verse 8. He says, you're not the authority, you're not the teacher, you're not even the relief teacher. I'm the one who gets to say what happens on the Sabbath. So Jesus and his disciples continue from there. Poor dude, probably stayed in the, the field, the guy that came up with the idea, he's still there. And Jesus and his disciples arrive at the synagogue now. So they're now travelling. The Pharisees are still hanging back. They're coming up with plan B. Or maybe they already had plan B ready to go. But they arrive in verses 9 and 10. They arrive at the synagogue and the Pharisees goad him. And they say to him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Here's a man with a withered hand. Let me just read the verse for you. He went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there and looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus now points to another part of the Pharisees' issues. They'd made many extra laws, five and 10 and 15, maybe more, but they'd also made just as many exceptions so you could sort of work around the law and still be kind of righteous and hope God's presence comes back. So let me give you an example. It was work to try and fix someone up with an injury on the Sabbath, but if they were in a life-threatening situation, that was permissible. You could do that. You could not travel a long distance on the Sabbath because that was work. You should do that else on, on your own time, some other time. But there was a set distance you could go. And that was making their life hard, so they made a few exceptions. They just made those up as well and said, okay, you can pull your animals out of a ditch on the Sabbath. That's okay, because it's your livelihood. And if your animals die, you're going to die. So by extension, you're like, it's life-threatening. Pull them out. That's okay. Save your sheep. They say it's kind of painful to have to only go a short distance on the Sabbath. But if earlier that day you had pre-prepared your food and you take that with you, or you set it up somewhere, that's part of your house, that's where your house boundary ends over here now, now you can go the set distance, it's okay, you're doing well, just take your pot of food with you, take your crock pot. Um, so they had many rules and many exceptions, and Jesus says, your own exception says, you're allowed to pull your sheep out, are you saying I can't heal a man on the Sabbath? Checkmate, Pharisees. So then he says, how much more valuable is a person than a sheep? In verse 12, therefore it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. That idea that the Sabbath is for the good of people, not the other way around, not to be a, 
a burden that you can't do anything, not to weigh you down where the experts won't lift their finger. So then Jesus says in verse 13, he says to the man, stretch out your hand. This is amazing here. There's a man with a withered hand, he can't move it. It's been like that for a long time. And Jesus says, stretch out your hand. And the man, with much faith I would say, because he just says, Jesus seems to know what he's talking about here, I'm just going to do what he says. And so he does. So he stretches it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. So Jesus is showing, not only do I just talk about being the boss of the Sabbath, the master, not only am I King Jesus, I'm going to prove it, I'm going to heal this man with a withered hand in front of you. And we see that from that moment on, the Pharisees conspire, these experts, religious people conspire to kill Jesus from that time onwards. This is our story today, this is who the Pharisees are, that's who the Sabbath is and so far you're sitting there going, okay, that's a cool story, Darren. I like the bit about the wheat where the guy hid, that was kind of cool, wasn't actually in the Bible but I like what you did there. Um, But you said, I'm not like a Pharisee, I go to the footy. I don't go to church that often, I'm only here because a mate brought me, told me there was free coffee. Um, So you're not strictly religious. But I would say to you, there are actually parallels here where you are like the Pharisees and I am like the Pharisees. Let's dig a little bit deeper. We all carry a sense of identity of who we are. It's deeply entwined into our values, into the way that we live, our morality, our ethics. It flows into our ambitions of what we want to do. Who we are points to where we want to be. So for the Pharisees, they thought they understood true religion. They thought true religion is we make more and more oral tradition, not biblical law, so we don't have to break the inner law. But they didn't listen to Jesus when he said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And as James book of James clarifies in the New Testament, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and our Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. The Pharisees were concerned with part B, keeping oneself unstained and had forgotten part A, visiting the needy, orphans and widows in distress. For us, our self-identification doesn't understand Jesus as the Lord of the Sabbath because we might have come in here and not really known what the Sabbath was about. I learned a lot about it as I researched, so I'm with you on that. But we reject him too as Lord of our success, as Lord of our sexuality, as Lord of our savings. We're the same as the Pharisees when Jesus says, this is the way it is, and we say, oh no, Jesus is saying, you don't know what you're talking about. That hurts. I feel angry. I want to take Jesus out in the car park. But Jesus says, we want success at all costs in our relationships, in our business dealings, and that leads to us taking revenge. He talks about this. He says, you only love your close friends, you think you're loving, but you only love the people that give you good stuff. You just want success, so you're just patting people on the back that pat you on the back. He says in Matthew 5, in his famous Sermon on the Mount, 43 to 48, actually the way to live is to turn the other cheek. Because if everyone hits everyone, everyone gets hit. I think Gandhi said something like that, I've got it wrong. But Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Jesus says, love your enemies. This is 
how you were designed to live, but you say, no, I want success. I'll get it my way. Jesus says, I'm the Lord of your sexuality. And you say, nah, I'm kind of angry about that. In Matthew 5, he says, you want a divorce for petty reasons. But the only exception is cheating. Sexual impurity, Jesus says. We want to dabble in lustful thoughts. It doesn't matter what I fantasize about. But Jesus says it does. In Matthew 5, 27 to 30, it says, your thoughts are the seed of your action. You've already committed the sin in your heart when you lust or hate because you're ready to do it. In your mind, it's going on. We don't like that. Jesus, you're wrong. I'm angry. We want to define our sexuality our way in the way that God says, I created them male and female, he says in Matthew 19, 3 and 4. And he said, and marriage is when man joins the woman, becomes one flesh. We say, nah, I'm angry. So we don't like it when Jesus challenges our success or wants to be Lord of our sexuality or Lord of our savings. You say, I can serve money and be a nice person. Jesus says otherwise. Matthew 6, 22 says, the eye is the lamp of the body. And when you're staring at the almighty dollar, that's where you're going to go at all costs. You don't care who you walk over. He says, you can't serve two masters. He says, if your focus is on making the money, that's going to consume you. And we're hoping that Jesus is wrong. We're hoping the pursuit of creating our own identity or discovering our own identity will end in the perfect end to our story, rest and restoration. That's what the Pharisees wanted. They wanted their their nation restored with the presence of God. You're hoping for some happy ending to your story. You're hoping your identity leads to a path and an end where all ends well for you. Jesus says, you're going to be really disappointed if you're focusing on your success and your sexuality and your savings. He says in Matthew 7, I think it is, that that's the equivalent of building a house down on Brighton Beach on the sand. It's not going to end well at high tide. Some of these things are good things too, aren't they? Lots of these are good things. Nothing wrong with having some money. It's great to be able to buy a lunch, buy lunch for someone else too. Nothing wrong with being a sexual person. Go back to the Bible in the beginning. God invented it. That's where he says, I invented the Sabbath. I invented sex too, by the way. Jesus says, nothing wrong with being successful. Nothing wrong with having money. But when it consumes us, these good things that we wrap our identity around become an issue. They lead to destruction. I recently watched a bit of a Netflix documentary, got halfway through as as is my pattern when watching things. Partly because it's a pretty full-on series, but it's a Netflix documentary series and it's titled Lennox Hill. It follows several successful neurosurgeons through their daily lives as they treat and operate on patients with cancer. As you can imagine, this is a really competitive field. I have to imagine because I'm not that smart. I've never got no danger of being a surgeon. But it's a very competitive field and each of the doctors, you can sense they're quite proud of being a surgeon as they talk about the reasons they did it. Part part of them were driven to this field because their dad had cancer or their their dad was in the medical field or their mum inspired them to follow science and medicine. It's part of their identity. It really defines how they see themselves 
and the goals they want to achieve in life, their happy ending. And mild spoiler alert, I'm not going to tell you how it turns out, you have to watch it because I don't even know that bit. There's one doctor called Mitch and halfway through the season he's diagnosed with neck cancer. Isn't that kind of ironic? And I don't mean that in a bad way. But there's this doctor that deals with people all day with cancer and now he's grappling with having cancer himself and he confides in his co-workers, all experts too. How weird is it to be if you got diagnosed with something, you know exactly what's going on. You know the doctor tells you nice and you think, okay, it might be hope here. This guy knows because he's the expert. He's looking at, you know, his diagnosis and saying, okay, it might not be great here. And his co-workers are gathering around. You know you can't, you know, pull the wool over your co-workers' eyes when they're like one of the leading guys in the field too. So they're trying to console him. And they're saying, this is okay, this is treatable, this is all right. But Mitch, like the others, his identity is being a surgeon and doing surgery. So he ends up wrestling with the idea, should I get surgery or not? Because if I do, part of what happens when you get surgery, I might lose part of my brain function. I'll still be okay. People know I'm Mitch, I'll know I'm Mitch, but I might not be the same person I was before. I might not be able to do surgery anymore. Well, what if, I, what if I lose motor function? What if I, one of my hands doesn't work as well as it used to? I won't be able to do surgery. So his identity is wrapped up in being a neurosurgeon and he's grappling with the dangerous idea of not treating cancer because it might affect his ability to do surgery. This is a great example of what something positive becomes destructive when it becomes the core of our identity. And we're like the Pharisees. We put something at the core of our identity, which is not what Jesus says is our identity so we're back to feeling mad again because Jesus has said to us and to the Pharisees we're stubborn we want to do it our way we're self-centered we want that success and we're deluded we don't actually know what the happy ending is I was thinking about it and side note Sometimes if you're like me and you're not good at anything but you like trying lots of things, you sort of throw stones at people that are really successful and you go, you know, that sportsman, he's going to find out when he's really successful. When he wins uh, five championships, he's going to work out that wasn't what life was all about. Um, And when Andrew builds the new Sydney Harbour Bridge, hang on, he's going to Canberra, the Canberra Harbour Bridge, which is better than the Sydney Harbour Bridge, he's going, you know, he would find out as an engineer that life, you know, it'll still be empty. And so... We either search for fulfilment in being a specialist, going, I'm just going to pursue this until I'm the best in the world, then surely life's going to be good. Or you're like me and you just say, I'm I'm probably not going to be great as a specialist. I'm just going to try everything and see which one works. And so you just hop around to different hobbies. Caleb, don't laugh. He knows me. So you're over here and you're roasting coffee on one day. You're over here and you're building one-eighth of a deck, not even that far along. And then you're over here and you're doing something else. You're going, surely one of these things is going to work out okay. I'm going to find happiness. I saw Nick playing drums. He looked happy. I should play drums. And so you've got all these ideas running your head. So this morning, you're either a specialist or you're just hopping around like me, hoping something's going to be the answer. Hoping it's all, you know, if I just rotate my hobbies, that's what I have. I've got lots of them and I just rotate them around. That one, I don't, found out that watching a three-minute YouTube video doesn't make me an expert. I'm disappointed now. I'm just going to move into a new hobby because your learning curve, as you know, when you're expert, you go like that to start with. And then then you've realised I'm not an expert and then the rest of your life, if you want to be an expert, your growth goes like that. So I'm always excited about this bit of the learning curve where I'm going, wow, now I know like I can talk to someone a little bit about what's going on here. So when I sound knowledgeable on topic, that's what I've done. I've done that bit of the learning curve and I'm just pretending I know what you're talking about when you're an expert. But we're, we're hopping around, we're either specialists or we're just distracted. 
hoping something's going to solve the problem. So we're mad because we know deep down we're going to find that out eventually. There's some little warning signs that are telling us this is not working out for you, man. God's talking to me. Darren, you've got 12 hobbies. How's that working out for you? Maybe you need to find true rest. For you, if you're a specialist, I'm a little bit envious because I'm still half convinced that might be the answer to my life's problems. God's telling you, being the world's best, whatever you're going to be, bass player, Trigger's like, already made that. I'm there, mate. It's okay. Um, I'll ask you how that feels afterwards. But God says to you, it's not all that. It's not your happy ending. You're not actually living out your true identity. So Jesus is challenging us and he says, he's challenging our our knowledge of what you think life should be about. He's challenging our morals. How should life play out? And he's essentially saying we're on the wrong track because even a positive identity like Mitch will not save your soul, will not find true rest. That only comes from being in a deep and harmonious relationship with God. And he's likened our foolish pursuits to building on a foundation of sand. We don't feel great now, do we? Like, it's my life. I should be the expert. Who's this Jesus guy just rocking up and telling me what to do? How can he claim to be the Lord of the Sabbath? How can he claim to be Lord of success and sexuality and savings? How does he bring hope, rest and restoration that I crave? How, he, how is he the answer? Well, we see in this text that Jesus is the answer because... For one, he teaches with authority. Everyone is amazed. When you're an expert in a field, you have to constantly reference other people. You have to say, I learned from that guy. You can't, if it's just your idea, everyone goes, no, it's not a good idea. It needs to be peer-reviewed, okay? Peer-review is where it's at. Jesus says, no one peer-reviews me. I invented the stuff. He teaches with authority. Then he goes on to say, I heal the sick, the lame, the deaf. I raise the dead. As per Isaiah, you'll find that in chapter 11, when John, old Johnny the Baptizer is now in prison, and he's like, I've been preaching about you, Jesus, and things are going too slow for my liking. I'm going to send my disciples along just to check you out again. I thought something big was going to happen by now, and you're off, off in the wilderness. What's going on, Jesus? And Jesus reports back and says, as per the Isaiah prophecy, he says in verse 4 of 11, go back and report what you hear and see. I love this because this is a challenge. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. The last bit, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. What are you doing, Jesus? Shouldn't you be handing out free money or something? The good news is proclaimed to the poor. Here we see Jesus' mission and he says, I'm going to show you who I am through what I do, but your biggest problem is not your withered hand. Your biggest problem is not your low bank balance. Your biggest problem is you don't know who you are. So Jesus is revealing his identity, saying, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the Lord of everything else you've got going on. And he says, I'm showing you my mission. My mission is someone who wants to restore you to how you should be, to bring you back to harmonious relationship with me. I want to bring back the glory of the Lord, as it were, that the religious experts are looking for. I want to dwell with you, but that's not going to happen right now because we're at odds. We're going different directions and only one of these ways ends well. Jesus says, I'm Emmanuel, God with us. How does this come about? This can only happen, as you imagine, 
when we have a humble spirit. Jesus says in chapter 11 also, we've got to be like little children when it comes to these things. That takes humility. Jesus says elsewhere in the book that I've come to heal sick people, not healthy people. If you're healthy, you don't go to the doctor. You just keep doing what you're doing. Speaking to all the men in the room. You don't know you're sick. You're in denial, you know. We don't like doing that. But Jesus says, I didn't come for the know-it-alls. I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the humble and the sick. And so Jesus is really jarring on these experts. He's jarring on us when we say, I'm the expert of my life. I'll do it my way. I'm humming Frank Sinatra's song. But Jesus says, come unto me. If you're the sick, if you're the humble, he says, come unto me, all you are weary and heavily burdened, and I will give you rest. And better than that, you'll find rest for your souls, is what it says. You'll find existential rest. You'll find the happy ending. And it's not wrapped up in just your health or your bank balance or your relationships. Jesus invites us to believe that his work is what reconnects us with our intended identity. Your intended identity this morning, you'll find in the beginning of the book, is you're made in God's image, Genesis 1.26. God said, let, make, let us make humanity in our image. So this morning you have incredible worth just by sitting there because you reflect God's image. You don't have to do anything to do that. You're worth something. Your identity is... Once you trust in Jesus and what he's done to reconnect you to God, to restore you, and it's more than a reconnection, it's a rebirth. Your identity becomes the child of God. In 1 John 3, 1, it says, Behold, look at the love of God that's poured out on you. You are now called the children of God. And in John, it took a religious guy, Nicodemus, a long time to work out, what does he mean, born from above? Jesus had to explain, this is a work of God. You've got to be humble so that I can re birth you into your new identity, the one you were intended for. And then in 1 Peter 2.9, we see that your identity then is bigger than your career, it's bigger than your relationships. 1 Peter 2.9 says you're called to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, people whose job is to reflect the glory of God in everything you do, whether you jam hard on the base, whether you build big bridges or whether you heal the sick. Your underlying identity is a reflector of God, not your job, not your relationships. And this morning, you might have faith in Jesus. You might be a new creature, but you might be back in the old way of thinking. You might be thinking, if I'm really good at my job, if I'm a really good father or husband or mother or auntie, whatever it is, then I'll be okay. I'll find my meaning in life. So we've got to believe in the identity and the mission of Jesus to, to find out our true identity. And in John three seventeen to 18, we find out very clearly what this is. So let me just read that to you. John three seventeen to 18, two verses tell us in shorthand the identity and the mission of Jesus. 
I'll even read the famous 16 for you guys that love that. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Here's the mission. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. There's his identity. That's what you're called to do. That's what you're called to repeatedly do. We've got to throw away those things that distract us. And we have to be humble to do that. We have to be rebirthed to do that from above. So how are you going to respond this morning? Singer-songwriter John Legend has a song that I'm not going to sing to you. I'm going to read the words because it's actually like a love song and his identity seems to be wrapped up quite strongly in this other person that he's singing to. I don't know who it's written to, but you get that vibe from the song. You're going to start humming the tune in your head after this. But it's actually fascinating. When you read the words, the first part you can actually read as an invitation from Jesus and the second part can be a response to Jesus. It's definitely not John Legend's intention, but I just thought I'd read it to you because it talks a lot about love talks a lot about meaning it says because all of me Jesus could say this because all of me loves all of you I love your curves and all your edges sorry I love all your perfect imperfections give your all to me and I have to change the line slightly I've given my all to you we can respond with a second part you're my end and my beginning even when I'm lose, I'm winning. Because I give you all of me. So I don't sing. And you give me all of you. Oh, oh. Give me all of you, oh. We can say that. And then there's a bridge. Cards on the table. We're both showing hearts. Risking it all though it's hard. This morning, we can do that. We can put our cards on the table and say, Jesus, I need to submit to you for the first time. I'm wrapped up in my own, my own identity as in success and sexuality or savings. I need to receive your peace as your child. You might need to call out this morning and say, you are king Make me new again. Give me new life. If you've done that already, you might need to lay your cards on the table this morning. You might need to make Jesus the Lord of the Sabbath. That's what he said he is. And you're okay with that because that doesn't apply to you that much, you think. But you need to make Jesus Lord of your success, Lord of your sexuality, and Lord of your savings. A question for all of us is, What do we need to submit to King Jesus this morning?